This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Benjamin Zhao from Hex on the recent happenings of the hardware accelerator based in Shenzhen, China, and discuss what Mike Moritz from Sequoia Capital got right and wrong about China's startup ecosystem. Hi, Ben. Hi, Bernard. Pleasure to be back. Yes, and you were at the episode 11. I remember all the first 50 episode guests. Actually, I can't remember all of them, but you are one of my most important guests at that point in time. And still is today. Oh, oh thank you so much. And, uh, your, your podcast grew a lot. Uh, like, congratulations. Yeah, so where are you now? So right now I'm in Paris, but I basically work between Shenzhen, Silicon Valley, and soon New York as well. You're one of the most busiest and most productive people that I'm talking to. And I'm talking to Benjamin Joff, partner at Hex, the most well-known hardware accelerator. If you have not read TechCrunch, you have not read VentureBeat, you have even read a lot of articles out there, you will definitely know him. So Ben, it's great to have you back again since our last conversation. What have you been up to? Well, pretty much busy with hacks growing our fund because when uh, we talked at uh, the end of 2014, we're still pretty small operation, mostly focused on the hardware acceleration. But then we now grew into a seed fund. So we deploy about a quarter of our capital at the accelerator level on pretty much everything else deployed as either follow-on or maintaining our shares in the best companies. Also at the time, we're like a small office, probably about five people in Shenzhen. It was like the fifth batch probably was finishing 2014. Now we've uh, batch 12, we've done over 200 investments. We have 30 people in Shenzhen, another five or six in San Francisco. And uh, some of our companies have become very successful in the meantime. Probably the most famous or the biggest one at the moment would be MakeBlock. It's a company making robots for education. They also receive investment from Sequoia Capital. The company has about 500 people now. They're doing very well. It's a Chinese company and they're selling overseas more than half of the product. Another one is a company called Yealink. It's invested by Xiaomi and they do smart lighting systems. They're also doing very well. One in the US in the IoT space is called Particle and it basically brings uh, connectivity to IoT project, particularly these days with uh, cellular, cellular IoT. And uh, we have a bunch of others. Uh, also, the complexity of the projects we deal with has increased. We're not doing a lot of robotics, a lot of enterprise, a lot of uh, health tech devices. In robotics, we have one company called Avidbots, based in Canada. They do like large-scale cleaning robots. They have about 100 people, so it's already quite a large company. Actually, in Singapore, you can see one of their robots, at least, that's uh, cleaning the Changi Airport. So if you see it, you can say hi. The robot is probably not going to respond because it's busy cleaning, but it's not going to bump into you. It's going to go around or it's going to wait until you're done with what you're doing so that you can continue cleaning. Last, we also have still some activity in the consumer space. One company, for instance, called Neura has made a pair of headphones that can test your hearing profile and then adapt the sound to basically your biology. So we have a lot of really exciting devices. The health tech space, I've just mentioned one that just received investment, uh, Kosla Ventures. It's a Swedish company called Flow Neuroscience that makes a device that you put on your head and that helps treat depression with a low voltage current. So that's uh, some examples. So yeah, so Hax has grown a lot uh, since it started about five years ago. In addition to our Shenzhen program or San Francisco program, we're also starting a new program that's uh, 
between San Francisco and New York to help startups plan their exits. That really comes from the fact that we realize you don't just need to make a product, you don't just need to learn how to sell it, you also need to plan the outcome for your company. And a lot of founders think it has to be done very late, but in fact, most of acquisitions happen below 100 million and before Series B. So that means that already at Series A, you have to think who could be an acquirer for my company because that's the most likely outcome. That's like 90, 95% of exit. So we decided to set up this program mostly so for hardware startups, mostly for our portfolio. We're launching in April between San Francisco and New York, and that will be a, basically a pre-MNA, pre-IPO program. So effectively, the first exit accelerator. So how has the hardware ecosystem in Shenzhen evolved in the past three years? And what's the trajectory look like since we last spoke? So in the past like three, four years, a lot of things have changed. I uh, remember at the time it was actually quite difficult to find international food in Shenzhen. And now you have like giant shopping malls, really fancy. And the, like even the electronics district has kind of gentrified a lot. Uh, but I would say in the hardware in general has, uh, has grown a lot. There's uh, globally, there's uh, more and more projects, much more high tech more investors that are specialized in hardware or have some hardware specialty. But at the same time, because the level has grown up, it's actually more difficult for, I think, founders to finance things that are more like gadgets. I would say something you could put on Kickstarter, you had a chance like a few years back to get investment. Today, it's, I think, more difficult. Investors, more int- like us, actually, are more interested in a B2B or recurring revenue because there's a demonstrated benefit. And cost for B2B is less of an issue if you can demonstrate you save them time or money. Whereas when you deal with consumers, there's always a question whether they really want or need this. It tends to be like more like a nice-to-have. And they're very price sensitive. So Shenzhen probably is very big now, right? With that Wired video that was done with, I think, Bunny Huang. Two years ago, you were talking about it being just like the AWS for hardware. I think with Tencent being there, there's also software too. So do you see it becoming more and more like the future Silicon Valley place in Shenzhen? Yeah, I mean, we can talk about the difference between like what makes a Silicon Valley. I think every place is very unique. Shenzhen is definitely unique in the world for the, its capacity to support hardware companies. As you said, Wired, the documentary that's on YouTube, and probably nearing about 2 million views, like considering it's, you know, it's not about a holiday destination. It's actually quite amazing. So the Wired guy did a very good job with that, introducing the ecosystem. And I think now it's really on the radar for hardware founders. Uh, they're much less hesitant to hop on a plane on go on this try to see what the ecosystem can do for us. It's still difficult to engage with the ecosystem when you're an outsider. So I think for that, Hacks is a really good like a landing pad for hardware companies. But there's, obviously, we have pretty strong filter in terms of a type of company on stage. We cannot work with everybody. Aside from that, it's true also that Shenzhen has a number of uh, very strong software companies. Um, Tencent is definitely a, like a giant one. But I would say what's more interesting is how the region is developing and uh, how it's connected like in the whole Guangdong with also Hong Kong as well to become something bigger. I know that the mega metropolis, I think even connects to Zhuhai as well, which is where my family genealogy came from in South China. Even Macau. (laughs) Today's main topic is an article that you have recently wrote. And I thought that that was one of the most well-written articles that I've read from you. And you've probably written many, many interesting articles. And that's about what Sequoia's Mike Morris don't understand about startups in China. And of course, to start off with, it started off with a Financial Times article written by Mike Morris, which is the partner from Sequoia Capital. Very well-known. He's also a well-known journalist who have written books on Return to the Little Kingdom and Leading, which talks about Alex the football manager of Manchester United. And he wrote this article called Silicon Valley would be wise to follow China's lead. And he talked about a critic on the work ethic of Silicon Valley and some of the issues 
embracing the 996 and frugality mentality in China. I saw at least have some introduction to what 996 means. It means 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. So I think to start off, maybe to get an understanding, what have you read on the, about this article and what really Mike Moritz is talking about in that article? Yeah, this article obviously had a really good platform. Uh, so first being from Sequoia, second being Mike Moritz, and third being on the Financial Times. He had a really good platform to actually share his views. But I would say I can't tell what he actually thinks. And my take when I read the article was that it was a bit trolling. It was trolling Silicon Valley. It was trying to kind of make fun of what he feels has become a too comfortable environment, like the Perks culture. But to be honest, I think the underlying message he had was not about Perks or about, uh, you know, comfort on holidays. It was or frugality for that matter. It was, it was about the fact that China is coming. It has to be taken seriously. And maybe he was implying that US is kind of losing an edge. But if you look at really what's happening in startups, and I'm not talking about Google as a startup or Facebook as a startup, where you have all those perks. In regular startups, people work really, really hard in Silicon Valley. So I don't think it really applies there. In addition, what he observed, like, uh, you know, things like reusing tea bags or, you know, saving money here and there with air conditioning or whatever. When you compare that, somebody like actually wrote to me saying, you know, in Chinese companies, they have those end of the year parties where they spend like crazy money, they do like they give uh, like red envelopes with money to to staff. Uh, they they run contests uh, where people can win cars. So I think this is true for kind of larger startups or larger companies. But overall, I would say people work hard everywhere. What's more interesting is the message that China is coming, and whether it's a threat, whether it's an opportunity whether there's something to learn. I have this observation on Southeast Asia because it seems that ever since Donald Trump took over the US, it's basically the US companies are actually in a retreat in the Southeast Asia market. It seems that the Chinese tech giants are making a much more deeper foray into the Southeast Asia market in the past one, two years. And I think from your observation, you alluded to the fact that maybe Mike Morris didn't really understand China. So I have a question on that is, how does China differ from the US? In your article, you talk about the market size, the education focus and economic growth. Yeah, I mean, the trajectory of the US and China are extremely different. And that's why you cannot just copy paste solutions and attitudes of people from one place to another. Again, you know, I think Mike Moritz is like probably a really sharp guy. And uh, he's probably been to China a bunch of times and probably talks to a lot of Chinese uh, companies on through investments on everything. It's really impossible to tell what he actually thinks, how deep is his understanding. So I'm just referring to what he wrote. I would say that here, the difference between US and China is that China comes from 40 years of growth from, and because of that has a very optimistic uh, perspective on developments. Also, there's a, a number of ca- uh, companies that have been very successful. So it's a very attractive value proposition today for Chinese potential founders to actually start companies because they've seen a lot of success. There's also a lot of capital. It's a large market. And I would say, to, referring to your point, the point you make about Southeast Asia, is that in terms of, I'd say, ecosystem characteristics, Southeast Asia is a lot closer to China than it is to US. So, you know, if you look at Tencent, basically, the, it's a company that makes billions of dollars and all very little of it is coming from advertising. Whereas when you compare to Facebook and most of the, many of the US business models is based on advertising. So basically the difference with China and US is that the ecosystems have a very different trajectory and very different characteristics in terms of GDP per capita, in terms of infrastructure. Due to that, actually China in terms of ecosystem is a lot closer to some emerging markets in Southeast Asia, like Indonesia, India, Thailand, Vietnam. Singapore will be quite different market because it's uh, a lot developed and uh, like much higher GDP per capita. So it's a lot 
closer in terms of structure to Western markets. So I think this is one interesting point as well, right? The other thing that you also brought up in your article was about the STEM graduates. I think China and India are actually producing more STEM graduates as compared to the US market and the kind of economy is driving is also pretty different. So the other part of it is that I think some people will usually want to flip the question around. Why can't just the US copy China as, you know, China has copied them in the last decade and now, you know, it's the other way around. Yeah, that's true. So uh, on STEM graduates, actually, I think this is actually a very important point. I think China is about like eight times the number of uh, STEM graduates in the US. This will have an effect in terms of number of companies, in terms of, uh, you know, developed skill sets. It will definitely have an impact. And that's a concern if you want to compete on a global level. Now, in terms of copying China, I think the challenge is everybody's looking at what's going on in the US and it's in English, so very accessible for many people. Whereas looking at what's going on in China is a lot more difficult because it's mostly in Chinese. So in fact, there are some companies in the US who are paying attention and some entrepreneurs who are trying to adapt what they see in China. Some of them are successful, some of them are less successful. Some of it is obvious, some of it is not obvious. Uh, when you look at the evolution of, uh, of messaging services, a lot of it, you could say, is inspired by WeChat. But again, here I would like to mention that it's very hard to pinpoint who invented what, because what generally we notice is when something goes to scale, not really the original inventor. Arguably, Tencent and WeChat they learned a lot about from what was going on in Korea or in Japan, who themselves might have learned from somewhere else. So it's really hard to go back to like the, the origin story, but definitely China reached scale in the number of, of services much faster. If you look at what happened in the group buying space, for example, there's a company, so everybody knows Groupon. And in China, there were hundreds, if not thousands of uh, like copycats over there. But because of competition, because of different market structure, they actually had to evolve quite a lot. And today, one of the leaders of the market is a company called Meituan Tianping, which is a mix of Groupon plus OpenTable plus Deliveroo plus Yelp. So it's kind of a big kind of lifestyle service. And it's actually like more than 10 times bigger than Groupon today. And maybe that's an inspiration for, you know, Groupon itself to see how they could evolve as a service and maybe combine with, with some other things. The same for Didi, ride-hailing company that was the first one to integrate the last mile service by locating also bicycles because they realize it's not just about renting cars or about um, you, uh, like uh, riding cars but just about movement. So it's really interesting to see that some of the, the evolutions of US, you could say, famous services are actually already observable in China and could actually bring back some ideas to the US as well. Sorry, I'm talking here about like the, the biggest companies, but there's also many, many very large companies that are not famous outside China. Like I mentioned just a couple, but maybe Cheetah Mobile is a company doing mobile, mobile app service, like a memory management for mobile and a bunch of other things. It's a multi-billion dollar company and very few people would know about it in the US. I find it very interesting because when you pointed out very succinctly earlier that US companies tend to rely a lot on advertising and it seems that they don't like microtransactions and what the Chinese companies do best is copying their model and put in the microtransactions to get it to work. Yeah, to be honest, I doubt that this is because they like or don't like. I think it's just the ecosystem constraints that push you in the direction. The default model in US for a very long time has been advertising. So they kind of reach some kind of local maxima in number of services using that model. But when Chinese companies try to, you know, launch similar services in China, it just didn't work because the, the advertising market wasn't developed as much. So they had to explore new models. And that's when they looked at Japan or Korea to see that there were other models 
and they adapted them and they worked really well and they ended up being bigger. So they found another maxima that was, in their case, like a much bigger one than the one they could have reached with advertising. But what's interesting is that now that model could actually perform really well in the West as well. Like if you look at mobile games, for example, the microtransaction model is the largely prevalent model for all around the world. I hate to say this, but Facebook Messenger really dropped the ball because they got the payments guy in and they couldn't even implement WeChat-like payments systems into the Facebook Messenger. And un- until now, they still can produce nothing, nothing, not even a competitor to WeChat in Asia. You know, I'm, I'm sure that they know really well WeChat now and they know really well what WeChat can do. So the problem is that when you arrive in a market where there's already some legacy and some competition, it's not as easy. When they developed in the US or in most Western markets, there was nobody. So they could do whatever they want. They could push a number of services. But now there's a lot of alternatives. Also, you have to remember that in China, a lot of people used to pay with cash or some card payment, but it was kind of not that great. You know, that people don't really have credit cards in China. They have bank cards, like a debit cards. So the credit aspect of it wasn't really so important. So you didn't have to deconstruct a credit habit to get them into payment. So that's an advantage. I have this question that I would like to hear your thoughts on. It's really surprising to me that we often hear US companies speak of China as this great market to expand because of the 1 billion population but we don't hear the reverse. We never hear the Chinese tech companies say, hey, you know, US has a 330 million market. I want to be. They would rather stay domestic because they say, we haven't really opened up the full China market yet. Why are most Chinese technology companies other than the BATs, I mean, just omit the B, but put Tencent and Alibaba, are really competing for the US market? Well, I think Chinese companies already have a lot to do in China. And also they're very I think, pragmatic and realistic, that when they look at what they're doing in, in China, they realize that they cannot just copy-paste it to the U.S. Baidu, uh, how can it compete with Google that's so established in the U.S. or in the West? It's extremely difficult. So I think they use different strategies. A lot of Chinese companies are now investing very heavily in uh, startups all around the world, in, in U.S. in particular. Some of them are opening research centers to tap into the U.S. talent. Baidu, for example, did that. They're just, uh, you know, having a very different approach that I think is working pretty well for them. Like uh, Tencent has bought a number of um, uh, foreign game companies, like uh, uh, they bought uh, Riot Games that operates League of Legends. They bought Supercell in Finland that does a Clash of Clans. Those are market leaders. So if you consider that, you could say they're already dominating the US market. They just don't advertise the fact that it's via acquisitions. And I think they're also running into problems like the recent failed acquisition of MoneyGram by M Financial and also the Huawei and AT&T deal that didn't happen for the smartphone to launch in the US. There's kind of a proxy looming trade war between China and US. Do you think that those all contributes to why Chinese companies don't want to go to the US market? No, I think, you know, they, they, they will keep doing what they do. What the reality is that, you know, even though we hear about free trade on free markets everywhere, every country applies some level of protectionism to serve its own interests. And uh, sometimes it's national security is used as an excuse to protect local businesses. It happens on both sides. Basically, depending on the category and depending on the size of deals, things might or might not happen. Uh, you have companies like DJI, the drone champions, they're the world leader in drone imagery. And so far, they don't seem to be facing much trade barriers anywhere. They actually pretty much destroyed most of their competitors everywhere, including uh, in the U.S., a company called 3D Robotics that was doing quite well for a while. I think we'll be on a case-by-case basis. Obviously, things related to communication infrastructure tend to be sensitive on both sides. 
I think it's just a reminder of that. I thought this would be an interesting part because your article is one of those few that actually talks about the impact of the Belt and Road Initiative for Chinese companies. How does the Belt and Road Initiative open the path for Chinese companies in global expansion? What's interesting, this Belt and Road Initiative is kind of recreating some of the kind of older Silk Roads and also expanding it. What's interesting is that it goes basically all through Eurasia and all the way down to Africa. It's already quite well known that China has a lot of economic interests in Africa, mostly to secure resources in different ways. But as part of the package, uh, they also brought a lot of infrastructures, roads, trains, on the ele- like energy, all, all sorts of things to make sure that they can access those resources. So it's kind of self-serving, but as kind of a side effect, they also help develop the region. So the Belt and Road is interesting because it provides for Chinese companies in particular a, an easier way to reach those markets, particularly through Eastern Europe and Africa. Actually, what's really important there is that the U.S. are totally out of the picture. The Belt and Road Initiative is really interesting because it goes through Eurasia and all the way down to Africa. So for Chinese companies and Chinese government, it's a way to uh, tap into new markets and new resources. What's really interesting there is that not only it brings them market access, but they also have developed infrastructure that will fluidify the movement of uh, people, resources, and capital. The most important part is actually what's not part of it. So the US obviously is not geographically involved and part of Western Europe is also kind of out of the picture. In terms of uh, economics and also geostrategy, it's actually really important. It almost seems that they're opening up a new gigantic emerging market for them to play in instead of trying to compete in the Western markets, which is the conventional wisdom. So the Chinese is actually thinking this is not the conventional wisdom. We're going to go in in a different way. Yeah, I think again, what helps is ecosystem similarities. It's possible that when they look at a number of countries in Eastern Europe, in in Africa and Southeast Asia, that China is looking at them and thinking, oh, it's like they're a little bit on a similar trajectory to us. Obviously, there will be differences, but their economy will grow, the infrastructures will grow. The market will grow. We have some better idea how this this might play out and what the opportunities might be. So definitely, I think China has a has an advantage there. So drawing back to the original conversation, so what did Mike Moritz get right and wrong about China startups? I think what he got what he got right is that there's a lot of very motivated, very hardworking, very high tech companies in China that have ambitions that first domestic and some of them potentially global. I think if you look at some of the companies in the bike sharing space, for example, I'm in Paris now, you have probably half a dozen Chinese companies doing bike shares in Paris. You have Mobike, you have Ofo, you have Gobi, you have Obike, they're all here. And what's really interesting and kind of symbolic is that Paris was pretty much the first city to do bike sharing with a service called Belib, something like 15 years ago. And now this be beaten by, by Chinese companies on its place of origin. So I think that that's what Mike Moritz got right. Everything else is more about, you know, the appearance and the surface of things. But I'm not sure Chinese companies are that frugal. Like if you can consider the context of China where, I mean, until recently, you know, Chinese students, you know, there's six in a room, in a dorm, they just used a different level of comfort. So it's not that they're sacrificing. Actually, the comfort in Chinese companies comparatively to what they have when they grow up or compared to non-tech companies is actually really good. So if you put things in context, it doesn't look like what Mike Morris was suggesting. You will not see things like from 996, it becomes 007, 12 a.m. to 12 a.m. and then seven days a week. 
you know, I think entrepreneurs are very similar wherever they are. You know, they're very dedicated to what they do. And the really hardworking, like 007 or 996, that's okay for the first, you know, year, two years, three years, maybe. And for like a smaller team. But I don't think when you reach scale of like, you know, hundreds of people, people put in those hours because they don't have the same incentives as well. You know, it's a very different to be a founder or to be an early employee and to be employee number, you know, 1,000 in a giant company. That's right. And I think this will also change as it evolves as well. I think remember in the early days when Japan was like the global power with Sony, they had all these suicide cases, but it also evolved because of overwork. And I think this will also gradually change with the society evolving as well. And I think that the kind of luxuries that they have today will be more comparable to what the US will have in the next couple of years. So you have operated in China, you have definitely been a thought leader in at least in the hardware startups and also the way you look at different startup ecosystems. Where do you see the Chinese technology companies in the next five years? So I think some Chinese companies are going to become even bigger than they are today in terms of geography. I think we will start to see an increasing number of uh, global from day one companies. I think the hardware space is actually very suitable for that because in a way, hardware is much less kind of culturally connoted, culturally dependent than content. So I think you will see more DJIs, not doing drones, but doing other things, maybe robotics. Uh, China is actually quite strong in robotics. I think on um, some other type of content, like games, for example, Chinese companies have already expanded to many markets, not necessarily the West, many other markets. And also, I think Chinese companies are still going to grow through investments and acquisition. Because of that, we'll actually be, in a way, using Chinese products without knowing, even knowing they're Chinese. Definitely, I have to say that hacks have actually contributed to some of these companies that are going to come out from China. Am I right to say that? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's uh, one of uh, the reasons the Chinese companies come to us is because they, want, they, they say they want to become global companies. So Ben, many thanks for coming on the show. And actually, I, I think this is one of the conversations I would really wanted to have. And your article really brought it out and having this conversation about where the Chinese technology ecosystem would go. So in closing, I have two questions for you. The first, can you recommend a book, movie, podcast, or anything which recently made an impact to your work and personal life? So I'll just recommend like some tech tech channels. So you, you actually mentioned uh, the 996 podcast uh, by GGV. I think it's really good. It uh, goes quite deep into what's going on in China. We also have a new series, uh, SOSV, so the mother company of hacks, about basically uh, what technical terms for startups. We call that VC lingo. And I think it can be helpful for early stage startups to understand. That's uh, probably on the tech side. That's uh, the two I would recommend at, at that stage. I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of the Sam Harris podcast. It has nothing to do with technology, but I think it's interesting in uh, the way it's looking at uh, the mind and the, the world. So uh, I also recommend that one. And I totally recommend the 996 podcast by Hans Tong and Zara Zhang. And they have interviewed some of the real giant leaders in the Chinese internet space. So my last question to you, knowing that you are now in Paris, revolving between China and Silicon Valley, New York. So how do my audience find you? So I'm pretty easy to find online, uh, either on Twitter, Benjamin Joff, or by email, ben at hacks.co. I also blog on Medium, on my personal blog and uh, I also write some articles for a number of publications. I write uh, on occasion for TechCrunch, for Forbes, for VentureBeat. And I just wrote uh, like just a, a first article for Hacker Noon as well. So you can find those online. You can find me at Bernard Leung or at bernardleung.com. You can subscribe to the podcast at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, tweet to me if you 
have any feedback. And of course, give me a five-star rating on iTunes or even a star on Overcast. Helping this podcast to be discovered is really something I need all of you to do out there. So once again, Ben, many thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Ben. 